away Haven't changed, had much to say But man, I still think them cats are crazy They were asking if you were around I'm Roger Armstrong and I'm joined by my fellow EBM regulars of back in the day, John Blaine, John Blainsey Blaine. How are you, John? I'm good, thanks, Roger, and uh, good afternoon to you and probably good evening to Paul. A very good evening to the other member of the uh, latter-day Funboy 3, uh, Paul the Esk. Paul, how are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. Last time we did this, I was on dial-up. You were on dial-up, indeed, yes, <laughs> and Tinternet was just a dream. Um, the last time we did this was, in fact, just... Under two years ago, we did our very first EBM for all those uh, geeks out there in May 2017. And the last one until today was four years later in May 2021. Um, we're going to try today and look back over the seven or so years since Farhad Mashiri took control, uh, arguably, there's a debatable point, uh, but bought some equity in Everton Football Club. Um, and seven years on, who would have thought seven years? So in 2016, Roberto Martinez was our manager. We'd just been absolutely robbed in a League Cup semi-final second leg at the Etihad while Raheem Sterling pulled it back from row Z behind the goal um, when we were 3-1 up on aggregate and we went out. And then later that season, we lost uh, an FA Cup semi-final to Manchester United, uh, late Anthony Martial winner after a Romelu Lukaku missed penalty. So two semi-finals, 2016, Mashiri decided to dispense with good old Roberto and the glory days were on their way. We had a bag full of cash and nothing could go wrong. Seven years later and seven years later, we're on our seventh manager. We've seen Ronald Koeman come and go, Sam Allardyce, Marco Silva, the great Don Carlo Ancelotti, the less said about Benitez, the better, the less than super Frankie Lance. And now we've got Daish, Daish, baby. We sit in the bottom three. We escaped relegation by the skin of our teeth last season. And in these seven years, we've managed two FA Cup quarterfinals under Don Carlo. No manager has had more than two full seasons and no manager has managed more than 67 games. We've had one season in Europe and the highest finish was, of course, seven, 61 points under Koeman in 16-17. Um, John, is this what we expected seven years ago? Not quite, no. I mean, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we probably would have had a new manager every single season since uh, uh, Farhad Mashiri became uh, an influential shareholder. Uh, no, we thought it was going to be a lot better. We thought there would be a plan um, and that that plan would then be executed upon. Um, I mean, you could, I mean, the stats are just astonishing, like you just said, Roger, about how many managers we had. We've had three directors of football, of course, or sporting directors at the same time as well. And, and we've had nine different members, of, uh, nine different people being on the board of directors as well. So astonishingly, I guess the average fan wouldn't realise we've had more board members than we've had managers. But um, no, absolutely not. We, we would have expected to, to be in a substantially different place by now, Roger, wouldn't we? Would, wouldn't we just, Paul, turning to you, I've got a bit of a theory and, and my, my glass tends to be half empty. <laughs> people would be shocked to hear that. But I've got a theory that Mashiri's managerial appointments are let's park the great new man in place, Mr. Daish. But I think every managerial appointment, and let's take Carlo out of it, every managerial appointment that's been made is worse than the previous one. Do you think we've ever learned any lessons from Kuman onwards? Um, no, Roger, I don't. I think um, that the sort of one might call it the decline in terms of the quality of managers that have come in over the years um, it's just a reflection of, of our loss of competitiveness as we've gone on you know Carlo Carlo accepted who was there under exceptional circumstances for uh, an extraordinary amount of money um, I think everything almost everything that the club has done in, in recent years just follows the the decline and, and you know we're gonna we're gonna get into that decline um, both on and off the pitch as the, as this conversation develops uh, but yeah. clearly Clearly, I think, and, and I think this is reflected also in terms of the people that we've been able to bring in as players, uh, our declining position has made us relatively less attractive um, as each year has gone by. So the quality of recruitment, we, we can talk about how we recruit and whether there's a methodology to our recruitment and whether there's a strategy and a long-term plan. Um, 
but you know, let's face it, I think we're a less attractive proposition as each year goes by. Hopefully now we might change that situation might change with Sean Dyche and with the prospect of new investment coming into the club, which I'm sure we'll touch upon. Yes, we will. Um, but you know, I think I think I hope we're at the bottom of, of what might be considered to be uh, like a V valley. And a V a V valley in sort of economic terms is one where the decline is very swift, but also then where the recovery is equally swift. Um, now that might or might not be the case. I guess it depends upon what changes are made in the next few months. I think the thing for me is if, if there aren't significant changes in the leadership and the gov governance of the club, then we will just flatline across the bottom of the valley floor. Yeah. I mean, we can go through appointment by appointment. I think it's pretty pointless looking at it chronologically because the yes, absolute yeah. in, the improvement on the pitch has been has been uh, invisible. It, it, it has been nothing other than an illusion. There hasn't been any improvement. We're in the bottom three yet again. But John, it's not so much about what he's done, Mister Mashiri. It's it's what he hasn't done. It's the people that he's still left there. Would you agree? Um, I, I, well, I'll come back to that in a second if I can, because I want to comment on Paul and his, his V Valley, right? Because yeah. he talks about a rapid decline. Well, I actually personally, I mean, Mashiri, Farhad Mashiri's been around seven years in two or three weeks' time, hasn't he? And, yeah. and, and in football terms, that's an eternity. So, so I don't think it's been a rapid decline. It's been a long, tortuous slide into a really dark place. Um, I mean, I would agree with Paul. I, I rather hope we're at the bottom of a pit, whether it's a U-shaped pit or a V-shaped pit, doesn't matter. We're down in the in the sticky stuff. Um, and, and the thing that astonishes me, to get back to your point, is you, you ask the question or, or you make the, the observation of it's it's what he hasn't done, which which is the challenge, rather than what he has done. And and I don't personally see any rhyme or reason or, or planning to it. I mean, if yeah. you look, if you look at the, the the nine board members. I mean, for me, being you know a bit finicky, I suppose. Robert Elston had started his new job before he ceased to be a director of Everton Football Club in, in a formal sense, which was a bit crazy. Um, obviously, we got people like Denise Barrett Baxendale, obviously Bill, who's been there forever and a day. But but we've gone through Keith Harris and Sasha Rizansev, and you know, do people even remember who Chris Anderson was? You know. And, and, of course, Brands was on the board, implying the sporting director, which we advocated in some of the early EBMs, would be on the board, but the current sporting director is not. Obviously, Grant Ingalls, who's a competent finance guy, ends up on the board and so on. But, but what he hasn't done, to answer your question, um, is bring um, people from outside the organisation who had quality and stickability. And, and it just hasn't happened, and therefore... We find ourselves with the same cohort of people making the same kind of decisions and anticipating or hoping for different outcomes. And, mm. and, of, and of course, with a revolving door of managers, every man and his dog has an excuse for why things have gone wrong. And indeed, the interference of the largest shareholder, the majority shareholder, the owner, whatever badge you want to give Fahad Mashiri, also makes accountability something difficult to pin down. So, so we end up in a pretty dysfunctional place, and yet we've had two strategic reviews in the last three years, and yeah. we still we still find ourselves in a place where I don't think anyone who wants a better Everton um, could could say this is a particularly good place to be. You know, classic Roger when you talk about what our chief executives have said in the past about laying down solid foundations for European competition and all those sorts of things. Well, if that's where we aspire to go, then, and I think Paul's called it out in the sense of, um, you know, what what is it? How do we recover, uh, mm. you know, our competitive position? And, and how long will it take? And, and that's the, the, the big question. Uh, and yet, and I'm sure we'll talk about where money comes into that and, of course, engagement in the state of the relationships with the fan base and so on. So it's a classic... If you were going there, you wouldn't start from here. And and I just don't see um, where Farhad's got to go on that one. Um, and I know we're going to talk about finances and stadium later, but maybe he, he's personally acknowledging he can't or, or the people around him can't bring in quality people for all the 
the reasons Paul gave, because um, it's a bit of a broken, a broken place. Why would you go there type of thing? And therefore, we're sort of bringing it in fire investments and we end up with some venture capitalists who could be quite brutal, I suppose. Um, yeah. it, it, it's interesting, times. isn't it? Because looking back over this period, you're right, seven years, bloody long time. And, and, and it's just under two years since we got together. But when, you know, and are we at the bottom yet? Don't know. Christ almighty, we have to stay in the Premier League because if we drop out of the Premier League, that's another step down. Paul, when do you think, when was the real tipping point for, for Mashiri when you thought, crikey, O'Reilly, this guy doesn't know what he's doing? Because for me, the absolute nadir of it was the appointment of Benitez. That was when you thought, this is, this just cannot work. This decision is, is, is a, is just going to end in tears. And that was the beginning of perhaps the steepest decline where relegation, that R word, has been in our vocabulary now for nearly two seasons. When did you kind of not give up on Mashiri, but start to really, really question his competence? Well, I, I, I was looking back on, on the various articles that I'd written, and I think I first started questioning Mashiri's um, management of the club or ownership of the club in 2017. So... Uh, effectively, 2017-18, about 18, 18 months into um, his tenure. And I think uh, at the, the, two, the 2018 um, AGM, you know, calling calling for leadership, calling for starting to make the changes that we all thought were going to happen when, you know, somebody who on the face of it looks like a global business person mm. who's got experience of running multinational companies uh, what they typically do when they come into an organization that is un underperformed before they've arrived, because let's face it, the reason why he came was because we were an underperforming asset and we represented a, a fantastic uh, development opportunity back in 2016. So we all expected him to make you know significant management changes, changes in the board, bring, not necessarily at that time, uh, removing people or removing the, the the head people, but bringing in people, yeah, bringing uh, in new skills, new yep. skills, new experiences to to broaden um, the capabilities of the board, to broaden and to increase the capacity of the board to do um, more than one thing at any one time. You know, an old one of yours, John, in terms of the, the board's ability to not or inability rather not to do more than one thing at any one time so yeah bandwidth yeah yeah, yeah. We, we we thought we thought all of these things would start to happen and then when they didn't happen 2017 that, that, that summer 2018 you know the question mark started to develop but you, i think you're absolutely right the, the, you know the the point at which it became clear that either fired machinery had no understanding of what this football club is about or he was just in total um i'm not listening mode was when he appointed appointed benitez not only having appointed benitez but then allowing the behavior patterns that developed in the short period of time that benitez was at the club where benitez just deployed a scorched earth strategy in yeah. terms of everything that had gone before him and nobody the board uh nor the owner uh, were prepared to stand up against that up to the point where his position his position Benitez's position became totally untenable but even when his position became untenable which was in the what in in the December of, of 2021 yeah you know we then went through a terrible period where we didn't appoint the next manager until the, the day before the final day of the January <laughs> transfer window so I I think the sort of Nadia was was that point. I think it was then accelerated for Fahad Mashiri with something that perhaps he couldn't have foreseen. But I think we will look back in future years and say the Russian invasion of Ukraine had a significant. Well, I was going to I was going to ask you that I was going to ask you that because that's clearly a geopolitical event and it brings together this whole you know where was the money coming from? Who was the power behind the throne? You've always been quite strong in your view that Usmanov was you know just a just a spectator really and just a mate. Well, um, can I can I talk about that very briefly? Yeah, please, because I think people want to want to hear yeah. what you've got to say on it. I've I've always said that uh, Lisa Usmanov was not an investor in Everton Football Club. He was not he was not a shareholder, and I stand by that. I perhaps underestimated, and I'm you know quite happy to put my hand up. Under underestimated what influence he had with Fahad Mashiri, because again, I didn't yeah. expect Fahad Mashiri to be so heavily influenced by third parties. 
Alicia yeah. Usmanov being one, and uh, Kia Jurevich and Kia being another. Yeah, as a, as a, as a, you know, a, another exa- example. Um, it was always known that through USM they were putting significant sums of money into Everton Football Club. And of course, um, he was effectively underwriting uh, the stadium because you know the original plan in terms of funding the stadium, once they got through the nonsense about Liverpool City Council, was that Mishiri would put the first bit in, we'd borrow some money from the banks, and then whoever the, the naming rights partner was, i.e. USN, they would come in at the end and, and, and they would pick up the the remaining bill, whatever that might have been. Um, now, clearly, they probably still believe that was going to happen just over 12 months ago, 13 months ago, in fact. Um, but it didn't, and it didn't for one reason, and that was the invasion of Ukraine. And yeah. um, I think, you know, if you wanted to have a really balanced debate, and if, if I wanted to be unduly fair, I would say, you know, there are two factors that have uh, impacted the club's performance. One is COVID. Um, and the second is the invasion of Ukraine. With regards to COVID, of course, the, the, the caveat with that is that it affected every other football club. Uh, yeah. It just so appears that it affected Everton more than anybody else. And that's a discussion yeah. point in itself. Yeah. I mean, the, the issue, uh, John, let me just come to you on this, because one of the areas we talked about a lot in early EBMs was revenue generation and, and brand development and commercial sponsorship and we needed extra skills on the board to help us generate these great new commercial deals. We were going to get sponsored by Twitter or whoever, Microsoft, whoever we were going to go out there, HSBC Bank. We were going to be this global brand that would attract global sponsorship. And the best we could seemingly imagine was a, you know, a Russian um, ISP and a Russian mobile phone provider. Um, why do you think we failed so poorly or we failed so far to develop the brand and its commercial revenue generating opportunities, which have left us high and dry in a uh, post-Russian sanctions world? I think um, that's a difficult question, to be honest, unless you're on the inside. Yeah. Um, it, well, you're it, on the inside, John. You're our spy, remember? Not quite, mate. Not quite, yeah. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know... If, if we're serious about it, it, some of it plays back to, to the conversation you just asked about Farhad Mashiri, USM, the relationship with Alicia Usmanov. I mean, Paul was pretty vehement back in the day that there was no relationship there that was formal in any way, shape or form, you know, and that it was Mashiri's money, it wasn't Usmanov's money, and, and, and so on and so forth. But in, in, in contextual terms... Um, Fahad Mashiri had a big bag of money. You know, he, he got significant dividends annually out of his shareholding in USM. And in some respects, as we've observed, I guess, lots of that money may very well have been wasted in, in, in the sense that he could have got a better return on the investments that he's made. And the one thing we can talk, say about this guy is, you know, he, he's poured lots of money, probably way too much money into this business when we consider and look at where we're at right now. Um, I think to some degree, and I don't know whether we talked about it on the podcast, I don't know whether it became complacency. I don't don't know whether it became just a lack of um, experience and a lack of bandwidth. And I think, truthfully, it was part, probably all of it, you know? That what about wrong. competence? What about competence, John? Competence in the sense that... Um, I don't People know. with the skills to go out yeah. and sell the club. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bill, Bill Kenwright would say he's the best salesman of ever that there is. And, and I'm sure he's, in a positive sense, seduced many a player or an agent into to come into this football club, particularly in the, his golden days when he had, you know, um, David Moyes there as a very pragmatic manager, right, who, who spent money like it was his own. Um, yeah. At the moment, we, we, we've had a, a football club that's been spending money like it's somebody else's. And, yeah. and, I, think, and I think that's the root of, of many of the problems that we have. Now, Farhad Mashiri, I think, is perhaps a particularly difficult character to manage or control upwards. Um, but that just meant accountability, as I said before, all went out the window in many respects. And mm-hmm. so, it, you know, I'm famous or infamous for using bullshit phrases. And one of those is, you know, projects go late one day at a time. And I don't know how many yeah. days there are, you know, in seven years, but certainly over 2,000. And in some respects, this project has gone late, excluding the stadium, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one day at a time, perhaps for 1,500 days or something. Um, 
and, you know, yeah. and, and then if you then play that back into how you communicate and engage with key stakeholders, which yes. also has yes. opportunity for improvement, then yes. you end up in a really bad place because these are all little things that are all joined together, you know? Um, I really want I really want to pick you up on that communication point and specifically you, John, because, you know, you've, you're, you're close to the club. You're much more of a regular match attendee than I am or indeed than Paul is. You've until very recently been the chair of the Everton Shareholders Association and you do have dialogue with the with the club. Right. And and you've been really quite vocal of late about the way in which they failed to communicate about the dismissal of Frank and then the appointment of Sean. How how can you um, explain this almost deterioration in communication for a club which wants to claim to be the people's club? Uh, It must must tear you apart. I I mean, I I can't explain it because the the current silence is frankly astonishing, you know? And and Frank Lampard isn't the, the, the first manager that our football club has failed. Because I'm a real, and it's deep and meaningful, and perhaps we can't go into it on this podcast. But from a people management and behavioral sciences and all that crap point of view, individuals ultimately only fail because they're let down by the enterprise that's around them, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and if you remove, as I often say, all the excuses that, let's call Frank an employee, if you remove all the excuses, then what's left is it's his fault. And therefore, if you're going to fail, fail quickly. And, and what we've seen to do over time, despite the fact that none of these managers have stuck around very, very long, many of them, if not all of those that we've dismissed, stayed longer than they should have done. Probably with the exception of Marco Silva, who perhaps, you know, with a bit of a following win, deserved a bit more time. Um, but old school communication, which is not engagement, old school communication by our football club is very much push, isn't it? It's one way. Um, yeah. And it stayed that way, and I think that's that's dictated from above. And I, yeah. and I think that the old-fashioned guy there, which is probably Bill, to be honest, is very much in, in times of difficulty, you don't say anything because if you don't say anything, you can't say the wrong thing, can you? But no, often precisely. the wrong thing is silence. And, and for four or five weeks now, our football club has been silent um, in its engagements it's not even been particularly doing communications and i think that's really really sad because it, it, the greatest asset it the greatest asset it has is the fan base and it's disenfranchised itself from them well precisely and and therefore there is we've always had it but it's become uh, a bigger opportunity and a bigger space to fill and so everton fan media john obviously you do a lot with uh, with with toffee tv and i did the podcast for a little while on my own and paul you've started to You've started doing not just the esque specials, but talking the blues. And we've had you from the Bullins out there, the Mighty Blues, Blue Room, and anybody that I've forgotten, please uh, forgive me. But there's such a richness and a depth in Everton fan content, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on podcasts. But the club simply refuses to engage with them and make and make the most of it. I mean, I know Toffee TV had a bit of an interview with Frank, but you know. Paul, I know that on a number of your podcasts, you've asked someone from the club to come on and talk, and you've had sort of responses from um, Richard Kenyon to say, well, very, we, we don't recognise these problems you see. I mean, how can a business, because it is a business, and this is Everton Business Matters, how can they ignore their customers for so long, let the customers effectively go rogue, because the result is that fantastic demonstration and march we saw on Saturday and this coordinated fan campaign? It's ultimately going to come back and bite them in the behind, isn't it? Well, yeah, quite clearly it will. But I think the difficulty that they have with communicating with uh, third parties, and before John like leaps on me, that fans shouldn't be considered to be third parties. But I think in the context of what how the club views it, they are. Um, I think they've got to work out the position that they find themselves in themselves first in order to be able to communicate. Because I don't think they have a complete understanding of uh, where they are as an as an organisation, and I don't think they have a complete understanding of where their faults lie, where their weaknesses lie, where they where there are gaps in their ex- expertise, um, where even other clubs are going, what direction other clubs are going. I think I think we are. I think we've. And this is, I think this is a function of two things. It's a function of a, an abs- largely absent owner. And secondly, 
function of a, an executive only board. Um, we have a this, this vacuum at the top of the club. Yeah, yeah. For for, for for real accountability, because it's back to the make you know managing well, your mark. Not, your not only real, not 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 only real accountability, but actually just a, just an understanding of actually where yeah. we are. What you know, yeah. one of one of the things about um, recovery, the first one of the first aspects of of any form of recovery, is the recognition of the position that you find yourself in, and your competitive position. Well, first of all yourself and then secondly your, your competitive position and i don't even i don't think we've got to that stage yet because i think up to a very short period of time ago we might be starting to get there but who knows up to a very short period of time ago the club would have denied vehemently any of the issues which people like me people like um you know toffee tv lots and lots of different uh, social media channels have been bringing up there would be a constant constant denial um, and if you speak to the people involved, then they will, you know, f outright flatly reject what 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 it is that your your analysis of the situation. So before they start communicating with us, I think they've got to start communicating with each other. It's called to... gaslighting, isn't it? What you're describing. Well, no, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm not. I'm not going into in, into 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 that type of sort of conversation. That they can call, we can call it whatever we like. What I'm saying is, before they start communicating with us, and before they start mm -hmm. being honest with us. I think they have to be honest with themselves, and that doesn't do you, mean. A, do you think they're capable of that? No, well, hang on. That doesn't mean a another internal review, like like the football review. It means having a proper governance system that allows people from the outside, you know, non-executive directors, if they don't want non-executive directors to bring, um, you know, proper management consultants in, who can tell them exactly what they're doing wrong both internally, but also in a, from a comparative point of view, what best practice means in, in other football clubs. And I think we've got a very, very limited understanding of that. And until they work that out, and until they work out how they're going to present that honestly, then mm -hmm. they can't talk to us. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why they don't. Okay. So what you're saying is, and John, I know you want to jump in. Yeah, I don't want to jump in on that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but what you're effectively saying, Paul, is we don't actually know what good looks like and we don't even know what competent looks like because we don't really know what we should be doing because, you know, we're, we're living in this air of um, rather illusory air of we're Everton Football Club and therefore there's an element of entitlement to us and, of course, things will just work out in the end. John, John what, are, what are your thoughts on this this whole in, in governance and in accountability, responsibility, communication that Paul's highlighted? Yeah, I, I think some of what was just said was probably a little bit disingenuous because I don't think you need to be Einstein to know what's what needs to be done to run a relatively small business like a football club. Uh, but 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 I think the challenges that our football club faces, I think they're common and they're many. If that doesn't sound like you know mutually exclusive, I think the structural issue that it has is that it doesn't particularly appear to listen to experts. You know, so. It, if you engage with, um, say, the comms people within Everton Football Club individually, then they're all competent people, well, the ones I've spoken to in the past. They're all competent people. They're all competent people who would recognise what should be being communicated right now and for the last four or five weeks. But they're handcuffed to a leadership team who either don't have the confidence to engage uh, effectively with the fan base or simply don't want to. And, and, and that's why it's a great conundrum, because you can speak to Denise Barrett-Baxendale and she knows the right things to do. She, she can articulate them. She's a good public speaker. You know, this what's going on now probably isn't doing a street cred any good, but she, she had a good, you know, a good reputation in the not too distant past and so on. So, so what we've got is an organisation that is very introspective, Roger. Um, yeah. Everyone who isn't on the inside is on the outside and therefore needs to be treated with caution, suspicion or, or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, and, and channels like whether it's the Blue Room, Toffee TV, um, the Bullens, the, the Bobblers, whoever it might be. I'm sure at stages everyone's asked for some proper, you know, feedback or representation from the football club. And they've got nowhere because the decision making process seems to be um, somewhat tortuous, you know, and yeah. and and I've taken recently to saying that 
the, the failing the football club has, which needs most attention, uh, is that it, it, it is its inability to be uh, decisive around the timing of making decisions, you know, and, mm. you know, and, that, and, that, and, and having a plan. I know we, we said plan, you know, <laughs> a, bit, a bit flippantly, but, um, you know, having a player inside a training facility who wants to join you and is having his PR photographs taken, but he hasn't actually signed the contract yet, and then he goes somewhere else because you'll sack the manager who was influential in getting him to say yes in the first place. That's a lack of control and understanding and self and self awareness and all other things Paul said really. Um, so, so, John, can I just jump across because this is bugging me? What what is it you having said all of that? just now, what is it that I said was disingenuous? Um, implying, maybe just by implication, Paul, that they don't know what good looks like. I think they they do know what good looks like. I don't think anybody has to look at other football clubs to think, what does good look like? We might want to say, what does the execution of good practices look like? If you look at Brighton and Brentford, who are 21st century Premier League football clubs, but what they're doing isn't any special magic sauce or concoction. They're just fundamentally doing what Sean Dyche does as a manager, the basics very well, which are all about knowing what you've got, knowing how to try and extract extract best from it and, and so on. So I think it's disingenuous to imply that people with um, the, the uh, intellect, if you will, of Denise Barrett Baxendale doesn't know what the right things are to do to get to a so better place. What, why on earth so aren't they doing it? That's my that that's exactly where I was going, Paul. And, and and that's the conundrum that I end up with. If I meet with people, and you've done it as well, and I know Roger has and uh, over various times and, and we've talked to people individually and we think, oh they seem to know what they're talking about. And then they disappear back into inside the force field and they don't do anything, any of the things that they said. I mean, right now we've got a head, or sorry, called chief now, but a chief communications officer who's not doing anything, you know? Um, and that has to be because he's been instructed from on high, uh, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. So I'm just going distilling that down to that the people at the decision-making level don't appear to want to listen to what the expert advice is that they get internally. And that's not unusual. I mean, it's not. It's not common, but it's not unusual. And, and that's why you have management consultants, because people often will listen to an external person telling them something that an internal person has been telling them for a very long time. And all of a sudden it's, oh, yes, we should do that then. You know, so there's a big reset needed there because clearly the culture is is damaged. And, and you know, I, I end up it's saying... A culture. Yeah. It's a culture that's unwilling to accept challenge, whether they know what Absolutely. good looks like and just can't do it. And, yeah, absolutely, and I did, Roger. Absolutely, Roger. I, I, don't I, want to sound, right, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to get splinters in my backside, but I am sat on the fence, and I want to agree with both of you on this. In that, you know, there clearly is a culture of fear, will not accept challenge, won't actually uh, embrace uh, a need for improvement for. Uh, measuring oneself against one's peers, which you would find in any commercial environment, however long yeah, yeah. you've been, been there. And that's desperately, I mean, that is stifling. That is trying to do your job with both hands mm -hmm. tied behind your back. Roger, Roger, sorry, second. Yeah. I hear what you say about that. Right? But yeah. I, don't know, I don't know anybody who's talented and ambitious who sits yeah. in a company for six or seven years Yep. That is stifling their growth, stifling their ability to do good things. Those people yep. move on. Well, not if they're happy with the money, Paul. And that's what that's what I think has happened I, with I, a number of people <laughs> who've been overly promoted to, you know, have had huge increases in salaries. And, you know, are sat there taking the money and, and that's fine. And and really they, they aren't ambitious, they aren't as talented as we need. Um, and because there is no competition, because there is no challenge. Um I want to come on to what Mashiri said, because I think this is really linked. Whilst that interview with Jazz was very staged and, and really rather unsatisfactory and his communication was poor, as, as has come to be expected, there was one really interesting thing that he said, because Mashiri said, I can afford to finance the stadium. And I'm myself. very happy with yeah. yes, myself. There were two yeah. things he said, and then he contradicted himself. I can afford to fund the stadium myself, and I'm very happy with the skills on the board. Those were the two statements he made complete satisfaction and ability to fund the stadium. But then he said, but I'm looking for some funding 
I'm looking for an additional investor to bridge a gap and because they would bring in specialist skills. So absolutely, yeah. A complete contradiction. Either we've got the skills or we haven't. Paul, what do you make, both of you, well, let's start with you, Paul. What do you make of A, that statement and B, the reports about MSP coming in and the price that they're paying 100 million for 25%? Does that sound like a decent deal to you? And do you think there's any chance of it happening and two additional seats on the board for them? Okay, well, I've, I mean, just to reiterate what I said five minutes ago, I, I don't think those skills exist within the business. So they, no, okay. they're so, desperately so when needed. Says, when he says but, he's happy with the board, he's kind of just being polite. Well, I, I, I understand why he has to say that because he's in, he's in, a, um, he's in a, a round of fundraising. So he's out there talking, you know, whether people believe this or not, he's out there talking to potential investors about, you know, taking a minority stake in the football club. He would sell if somebody was prepared to pay the price that he wants for it, but I don't think there are many of those people around. But there are people around who are prepared to take a minority interest in the club. So he has to say, first of all, that the people he's got running in the club are competent, which is effectively what he said. And secondly, you know, from just purely from a, a negotiating point of view, he doesn't want to leave himself in a position where the person on the other side of the table <laughs> thinks, I'm the only game in town. So where we've ended up is... Uh, in 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 terms of uh, MSP, is they're an investor in in sports franchises, sports organisations, different elements of, of of the sporting world. Apparently successful uh, investors have two two in, you know, well, at least the partners have two investments in in European football clubs, so they understand the space that they're in, which is good. They have. An amount of capital available, not a huge amount of capital available, but they have an amount of capital that is available, um, some of which is their own money, some of which is their, their clients' money. And what they're prepared to do is to invest around about £100 million. I know, I know the report said £105 million. That gives a, a post-money valuation of about £420 million on the club, which is getting towards where uh, Mashiri wanted it to be. But that's after the money's gone, gone in, not before the money's gone in. And yeah. it'll, it'll give them a 25% stake. Now, what will they do with that? If the stadium is completed, and I'll talk about the stadium in a second, if the stadium is completed, you know, there's an argument out there, and I know that Mashiri thinks the club will be worth £800 million, for argument's sake, in three years' time, if we're still in the Premier League. They could flip that. They could sell Mashiri and... Oh, double their money. Could, could flip it, sell it at that point, and MSP having put 100 million in, get 25% of 800 million, which is 200 million, uh, which is 100% return in two and a half, three years, which, you know, fantastic, well done. Everybody, every, everybody's very happy. Um, the other thing that their capital does do, and, and, and this hasn't really been picked up anywhere in, in the media, the 100 million in itself doesn't complete the financing of the stadium, but what it will enable Everton Football Club to do is to raise the additional approximately 200 million um, pounds worth of debt in order to finish off the stadium. So this increase in, in the club's capital, the improvement in the club's balance sheet will allow Fahd Mashiri and his advisors uh, to attract invest in debt investors to provide the rest of the financing for the stadium. Well, for our listeners, just very quickly, the 105 or 100 million pounds that comes out of the MSP bank account, where does that go? Does that go to the football club or does that go to Farhad Mashiri? It, go, it goes to Everton Football Club. And what would happen is Everton Football Club would issue um, more shares. So if they're taking a 25% stake for 100 million in round figures, yep. currently we've got 135,000 shares, of which Mashiri owns 94%. Yep, Everton. Everton in this case would issue another forty-five thousand shares, yeah, which would take the total to one hundred and eighty thousand. MSP would own forty-five of one hundred and eighty, which is twenty-five percent, mm -hmm. and that money would flow straight through. One would imagine it will flow straight through into the Everton Stadium Development Company, which is yep. the company that's currently paying all the bills. Um, which has that, about 300 million outstanding and that's 100 million towards that is what you're saying yeah, yeah. And, then, and, yeah. and then that would enable the club to go and borrow the money yeah. um the extra which, two or 250 million yeah you know, and, and let's be frank about this if we, you know if this is an open honest discussion borrowing the money at this point 
is going to be two or three times more expensive than it would have been had we been had we borrowed the money three years ago. Of course, of course. But then you could make your you could make your COVID and your um, you know Russian invasion arguments there that they just got a bit unlucky with the markets. Not not three years ago they didn't. No, but if they've done it three years ago, yeah. But what's made interest rates higher is a combination of COVID and the invasion. No, of I, I, I'm I'm saying that. So I mean earlier John quite rightly indicated that the stadium you know was running behind time even though it looks as if it's going to be finished on schedule that schedule's moved back as the years have gone on I didn't say, sorry paul i didn't say the stadium was running behind time it's currently bang on schedule it's bang on schedule in terms of what the schedule now is but if you look at what the schedule was in 2017 18 19 oh absolutely well we're going to be a year later than we expected aren't yes exactly yeah. now had we raised the financing in late 2019 can can you not do you not recall the two two thousand January two thousand and nineteen AGM where Fard Mashiri wasn't wasn't present at the Philharmonic Hall because he was tying was that the, the Joe Anderson was that the no, Joe no, Anderson it was the following year no, no. he was he was, oh, okay, yeah. he was t- tying up the, the final loose pieces to the stadium financing <laughs> of course he was yeah but if you, if you think about that's twenty nineteen that's that's like two thirds in the into Sasha Rizans of time on the board who seemed to have one objective, which was to do the funding for the stadium. Uh, well, both him and well Keith Harris as well, who yeah, absolutely. Ori- well, they... originally was was there for, for that for that job. Yeah, but but he went in twenty nineteen, didn't yeah. he, Keith Harris? Yeah, but but I mean the point here is that the, the moving overall of the project to the right, and we could talk about our our approach to securing planning permission made the whole process take longer as well, and you know, and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but if there'd not been an invasion in, in by, um, into Ukraine and stuff, then maybe all this would have been a lot easier. But you don't, time waits for no man, doesn't it? You know, and if you've got a, a cultural thing of, well, I don't need to do this today because I can do it tomorrow, yep. yeah, um, then you end up sometimes tomorrow never comes, you know what I mean? And it's interesting, though, when you call out the numbers and express the opinion about where this 100 million goes. Clearly, um, it should go into the football club, but it will also have the impact, won't it, of diluting Farhad Bashiri's ownership uh, of, in, in shareholdings. So shareholder growth would have to happen for him just to get back to where he was. And I am I am curious about how, how fixed this um, 25% is that CSP... Oh, sorry. MSP. MSP. Someone else's CSP, mate. Right. <laughs> Sports capital, anyway. Yeah. Um, whether they'll end up with less than 25% because, you know, nearer to 21% would make it a nice round, three grand for sure. And, and that seems to be a nice number and, and nice and tidy. So it would be interesting to see, even when it happens, what, what the sums turn out to be. Well, of course, that was the price that Fired Mishiri paid for the shares that were issued to him, £3,000. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I, I would argue, if I was sitting on MSP's side of the table, that there's no way these shares are worth that price, even if we put the £100 million in, because we are talking about a post-money valuation here. Yeah. So Mishiri would drop to about, I think it's 70.9%. Yeah, yeah. Um if 45,000 shares were issued. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things we've talked about throughout that's been a theme throughout all the EBMs is that you need a plan. Um, John, do we do we think he, that there's ever been a real clear plan? And if there isn't, what on earth should it be? Well, we've had two plans, haven't we? Because um, Only two? Well, two that we've been told about by the board because the chief exec told us that They've done a root and branch review of the organisation and put everything in place for growth. And I think that was, what, was that 2019-ish? And then we've got an external review that was done, obviously, to a clear brief, which I think summarised as it's a well-run business, you know? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and is that the same plan with the objective of achieving European football, which we haven't for six years in a row? Yeah, I would guess so. I mean, at the end right. of the day, you know, the plan on the green stuff is to win football matches, isn't it? You know, you'd, and you'd I, like and to I, think so. You know, no, Sean does it a bit tongue in cheek. You know, put the ball in their net and don't let it go in ours. There's a plan. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what it is, Roger. The plan it's never been effectively communicated to shareholders. Never mind to the wider fan base, um, and, and maybe 
as and when we come out of the maelstrom we're in right now, maybe that's what one of the first things that the football club could tell us. What is the plan? Yeah, I, th- I think Dyche came up with one, which seems even to be a bit better than the really rather ill-fated people's club that Mr Moyes came up with. And somebody I heard mention this on a podcast the other day, I forget which one it was, apologies for not name-checking you, but Dyche is the bare minimum requirement is the maximum efforts. They said was the closest they'd heard to an SNO in a very long time. What, what, what do you think about that, Paul? <laughs> it's not bad, is it? Really? Yeah. No, not, 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 not bad at all. Um, I mean, I don't mean running around like headless chickens. I do mean running around in a tactically organised way. Um, but, you know, it, it's very early days, isn't it? And we do get carried away because, you know, we've been on this roller coaster and we've just won one game of football and kept a clean sheet against the league leaders. And we're still in the bottom three with the derby to come. But do you think, do you think Dyche gets it more than any of his predecessors of the Mashiri era? I think, I think Dice is a highly intelligent guy. And I think he, um, I mean, it's clear that he's wanted the Everton job for, for quite a period of time, going back actually to the period when, when Benitez um, came, came to the club. And I think for him, it represents a marvellous opportunity because, uh, you know, he, he did a great job at Burnley. He's got a fantastic reputation in the game. I know some football fans didn't like the style of football that Burnley played, but, you know, he's a pragmatist and said, this is how we're going to play. This will keep us in the Premier League for as long as uh, we possibly can stay there. Um, it's a marvellous opportunity for him because it, sh- it will it will give him the opportunity to demonstrate he's more than a one-trick pony. And I yeah. think with his management skills and I think with his his intelligence, uh, we'll go we'll go a long way. It's unproven as to whether or not tactically he he can mix it with the best, but um, let's let's see what happens on that front. Okay. Uh, your thoughts on that as a plan and that version of NSNO, John? Um, I think that, um, they're very early days. I think... Um, Just a bit. Yeah, yeah t- t- 10 minutes in, in, into Sean Dyche's first press conference, I tweeted, if he can walk this talk, we'll be okay. Um, mm. I think his dad was a management consultant, so he, he may have had a, a, a number of sheep dips on the subject. But, you know, if you listen to what he said with Collie Moore, there was some really good, insightful stuff there about... If, if this thing wasn't broken, I probably wouldn't have got the chance. Now I have got the chance. I'm going to take it, you know, yeah, um, yeah. which is which, which is excellent stuff, quite forthright. And someone who knows, well, I know where I am and I know where I want to go. So let's get on with it. You know, um, yeah. I, I think breaking the um, what appears to be a too intimate relationship between the playing side and the non-playing side, I think it's pretty mandatory. I think if, if, if the whatever we want to call them, if the venture capitalists get their 20, 25%, whatever it is, and to stick a few people on the board who start asking difficult questions, then minimally the people are going to change because they're going to be challenged in a way they've never been challenged before. And if you want disruptive change to come into your business, you know, invite uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. An American venture capital firm. Yeah, invite (laughs) invite a wolf in sheep's clothing into the room, you know. And yeah. any any sheep who can't run fast are going to get gobbled up. So the wolf of Gladys Street. How about yeah. that? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I hark back sometimes to to, to the early EPM stuff, and I, we could probably put some of these out again, guys, and they'd just be the same. People would recognise the circumstances we find ourselves in. But uh, controlling the narrative, I think, is also something the club hasn't been particularly good at, and and, yeah. and I think it's real challenge right now. Uh, I think I said it before, is how they get out of this and or, or you know the V-shaped valley that Paul talked about. How do we start climbing up the other side of the slope? Because fundamental to that is the fan base. Um, all this um, needs the fan base on side. And Farhad Mashiri yeah. said in his interview with Jazz, which I thought was astonishingly well edited to make it look like Jazz and he were not in the same room um, yes. when, when they clearly were, um, if you speak to Jazz anyway, in the photographs and stuff. But um, one thing he said is, he being Farhad Mashiri, is he would do anything to get the back, the fans on side. Well, I don't think he has to do anything. He just has to treat us as grown-up adults and, 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 and tell us what's going on. Tell us, obviously, we don't want all the, you know, commercial sensitivities brought out into public. I think people get confused. Everton fans don't want to know. Every finite, well, some of us do, I suppose, but every finite detail of every transaction that's, that's taken place. 
but we do want confidence that we know who works for who, we know who's accountable to who, we know what their objectives are, and we know whether they're doing a good job or not. And getting rid of general meetings and not replacing it with the promised, you know, wider engagement they talked about and all these good things, they're all signals to anyone who pays any attention at all that actually the can keeps getting kicked down the road. I think we should copyright that for Paul. I don't know whether it was him or you come up with it first, Roger. And 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 at the end of this road we're in now, there's a wall. So the can isn't getting any further. So um, it's, it's going to be yeah. hard. Some hard yards need to be done, but I think we'll come out of it the other side because I don't think it will kill us. Therefore, it must make us stronger. Yeah, I, I, I'm always reminded of comparing Mashiri or not comparing, but hoping that we didn't have to compare Mashiri to either Ellis Short or um, Randy Lerner. And, um, you know, at times he's been the worst of the worst of both, really, with the, you know, the appointment of Benitez being classic Randy Lerner and the potential, you know, new stadium in a league below being, you know, first-hand and a disinterested owner with no money being pumped in, being classic Ellis Short. Let's hope that neither of those comes to um, fruition. I'd like to do round up with a few quick-fire questions. Sorry, to you sorry Roger, I'm being very but, annoying. But I knew that you'd want one more thing before I did that. <laughs> yeah. No, just on, just on the point of him being a disinterested owner, I think there's been a market change in... Um, his attitude since to, when to doing things in the last probably probably uh, certainly no no more than two months. Right, I think I think I think two, I think two things um, have uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, reignited his interest. Uh, one, the fear of being relegated. He had to do something about about that, and clearly that was to let Lampard go. But secondly, I think that this. To use John's expression about this wall at the end of the street, where the can's being kicked towards, that wall was was effectively the need to um, make significant payments this summer for uh, the rest of the work that's needed on the stadium. Right, and this coming summer, you mean this, this, this summer twenty twenty three? Coming summer, and I think I yep. think that has finally and ultimately um, focused his mind on getting things done. Okay. Okay. Can I just ask, ask, ask Paul, why, why does he think further payments are due this summer? You mean from a cash flow point of view, or what? What do you think? Well, I, we're getting towards the fitting out stage by the summer, uh, and my understanding of the way that the contracts are um, scheduled and the payment schedules is that there are significant sums to be paid at the in the early part of this summer. Before him, Mashiri has said more than once that he. The stadium is funded to the end of this year. Yeah, but he said he backed Frank Lampard. He said he backed Benitez and he sacked them a week I later. So. Find, I think you'll find when he said yeah, he, he actually meant sort of the calendar year. Or sorry, he meant the um the financial year. Um, I, that's I, not I, what he said to the well, that's not what he said to the shareholders. That's I know he says he says different things to different people, and I and I, I know without breaking confidences that there was a there is a requirement. Um, to provide su substantial funds by the end of this financial year. And if you want to no. go back and check on that, you, um, I would no, advise you no. to do so. No, you don't have to advise me anything, Paul. Um, the, the, the relationship with the construction company fundamentally eases their cash flow challenges by paying in tranches, which are fundamentally paying in advance, yeah, uh, which is why I asked the question. Uh, I, I have little doubt that there must be payments due because every time they get to the end of a phase, they get paid for the next phase. Yeah, correct. Uh, I, I'm just questioning your contention that that means he has to go and get some money when he's told shareholders more than once that he can fund it to the end of 2023. And indeed, he told the fan advisory board he could fund this himself if he had to. I mean, we either choose to believe him or not. I choose to believe him on those matters. Do you mean, Paul, that it was focusing his mind that the spectre of relegation was really, really uh, large in his rearview mirror or right in front of him at the end of the wall and therefore he needed to sort the shit out at the football club to prevent that happening? Well, one, Is that yes. what you mean? Um, yes. I, I mean, yes, in, ter in terms of relegation, but regardless of relegation. Um, and I don't, I don't dispute for a moment that if he had to pay it himself, he would be able to pay it himself. But it's a clear preference of his to get somebody else to pay for it, not yeah, him. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I think Paul, there's, there's and that and and that was the requirement as far as he was concerned that he needs, and and there isn't. You know, 
I can't say this too strongly, there is an urgency to getting this, first of all, this first investment in, and secondly, closing the um, debt funding round, which will follow follow on immediately from that. There is an no, urgency I, to it. Absolutely. And, and th- that step in that he's he's executing, yeah, it is, you know, indicative of how confident he is um, around, you know, the, the exact leadership team about whether they could deliver on some of those things. Because notwithstanding, we're not going to go around it all again, Roger, but if our commercial performance was significantly better, that would dilute the challenge that he has, right? Um, yeah. But in the conversation he had, or the Q&A he had with Jazz Bow, he also said, um, if I remember, and excuse me if I'm just reading between the lines and it's not the absolute words he said, he could fund the stadium himself if need be. Um, but his preference for not doing it that way is because he can't fund the stadium and put investments into the football team. Yeah, so, sure. Is, sure. He's basically said, I cannot do both of these. Therefore, I want help. And clearly, in different circumstances, that help would have come from uh, Alisha Usmanov. So... He's trying which, to be which, trying which, to be a which, university student and which, spend his grant on ten different things at the same time and think yeah. that he can still do that. Yeah, yeah, which, which, okay. which is why, combined with the threat of relegation, when the Anthony Gordon mon- money hit the account, it wasn't spent. Yeah, of course, it wasn't spent because it's a contin- It's now become a contingency in the event either of relegation, which hopefully is not going to be the case, or in the event of something going wrong with this, um, you know, relatively urgent funding, yeah. funding round. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's not get bogged down on the numbers. I'm thinking of our leadership and not bogged down on the numbers. We've covered them in enough detail. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah. Never I'm enough thinking... detail with numbers. Right. Okay. Um, quick fire. Um, I'm going to do a few quick fire <laughs> questions. So, Paul, I want row X cell 323 of your spreadsheet, please. No, it's all right. We'll, we'll, we'll gloss over that. The quick, fire, the, quick fire, <laughs> the quick fire question round starts now. John Blaine. Finishing league position for Everton this season. Fifteenth. Jesus, what? How many points are we getting? I've no idea. That just sounded like a good number. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. Degree of confidence in that? Uh, quite low. I think we'll probably f- finish about 16, 17, To be honest, yeah. Okay. Um, Paul, do you think the board can return to the director's box at some point this season? No. Do you think they will try to? I think if I, I, th- I think if if investment comes into the club, if performance improves on the pitch, yes, they they will try to do so. But um, I can't see a scenario, and this is it's not a criticism of individuals, or it's not a denial of any threats that they may have received. I can't see a scenario whereby the threat level, if they if indeed a threat level exists, and they, and let's assume for a second it does, because that's what the club tells us. What, how is that going to improve between now and the end of the season, given the position that the board have put themselves in? Yeah, it's difficult It's difficult to see a set of circumstances. Saturday was a perfect storm for the board um, in that we had a bit of a new manager bounce. We had a fan base united. I mean, the, the, the pictures, particularly from the drones, were really very, very impressive. And the number of different people and faces that are recognised on there from their different fan groups and podcasts was really heartwarming. Um, but everybody, I mean, everybody and the media seemed to have praised both the peacefulness and the purpose and the mission. Perfect. You know, the lunchtime kickoff, it got great coverage. BT tend to do it a bit better than than, um, than Sky. What were your thoughts on the ground on Saturday, John? It was on really ground, good. Your feet on the ground, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it was really good. Um, but the fans always turn up. I think I did a tweet that said something like, you know, um, the fans turned up, the managers You did, and up. the board stayed at home, absolutely. Yeah, and I think there was about like 90-odd thousand views or whatever it was in the end, something like that. Um, but but in reality, uh, to answer Paul's question, it, it, it's hard to see in a circumstance where the board feel confidence in coming to the stadium because they become the centre of the attention then with the mainstream media and indeed with the fan base. Um, so it's going to be a very big surprise if they, if they do come back. Um, which is obviously not a particularly uh, tenable situation, really. Um, no. About the threat thing, though, mate, um, because Paul said it, 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 the, the club says these threats have happened and therefore we have to believe them. I believe them, and it's not just board members who are getting threats, it's people lower down the organisation. And, you know, the, if there's Everton fans out there who think it's a good idea to confront individuals who 
frankly, are probably suffering as much as we are because they're on the inside having to see it up close. Then uh, perhaps they can just back off and let, you know, keep it clean, if you will, keep it classy. Yeah, I think the other thing to say, John, and I'm sure everybody that's listening to this will agree that there should be zero tolerance to any any threats or any abuse towards towards anybody, but particularly to any employees, including the board um, of Everton Football Club. That's not the way Evertonians behave. It's not the way reasonable, civilised people behave, let alone Evertonians. Um, and to a man, woman and child, there should be zero tolerance of it. And um, Absolutely. I don't think I, I, you can say anything I, stronger than that. No, I agree. And I think it's incumbent on everybody, including people like ourselves doing podcasts like this, to be cautious about what we say and do because we may incite people who, who will do things that they shouldn't because they think that's the right, not the right thing to do. That's something that needs to be done. And, and I think one of the things that's happened with, with, with the fan activism, if you will, is it's become um, smarter over the, over the last couple of months and is very clearly sending out very powerful and strong messages that this is about the, the dissatisfaction with the way the business is run, not a dissatisfaction with the, the, the manager and the playing staff. And, and I think one of the things Dice said in his interview was he needs to understand what's going on a bit more before he can question it. And, and I just suggest or observe that when the time comes for him to question, it won't be the fans that is questioning. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I thought those comments were directed more at the club than they were at direct, or uh, more at uh, the board uh, than they were uh, direct, directed at the fans. The, the other thing on on that is, I think women. I think we're now moving away from the protest stage to what the fans do now, at being acts of of support. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't think it was a protest. It was a no. march, wasn't it? It was a march yeah. of solidarity. It was a march for change. And, and that's that's very different vibe. It's a much more positive thing than the protest. Yeah. Pro protest is what you do in order to, to raise an issue, in order to get an issue out there in the public domain. That's been achieved. That, that phase of fan uh, activism has been achieved. What we're about now is supporting the institution that is Everton Football Club and making yeah. sure that Everton Football Club survives in its strongest position for our children and for our grandchildren. Here, here. Anything to add before I conclude this rather special and hopefully enjoyable, not just for us, but for our listeners, Everton Business Matters 2023, Mr. Blainsey Blaine. Yeah, just, just briefly, because you, you might accuse me of being a half full optimistic kind of person. We um, don't tolerate any of that. No, I, no, no, no. I, I, was, I was listening to... Um, I think it must have been on Monday, you know, where uh, Chappers does a thing on Five Live. And he, he had Rory Smith as a um I know. Guest. I, I listened to the same one. And I rarely <laughs> listen to Rory Smith, but he talked a lot of sense. I wonder if you're going to pick up the same point I did. Go on. Yeah, and he, he said that we should beat Liverpool um, because they're the easiest team to beat in the league at the moment. And then after the two home games, which he expects us to win, we'll be out of this relegation problem and we can look upwards. Brilliant. Brilliant. And the previous week, he said the problem with Everton has been recruitment and recruitment and recruitment because we've always bought players on the way down rather than players on the way up. Um, and not, not strictly accurate, but yeah, yeah, not strictly accurate. But we've had plenty of players on the way down, right? Certainly. Uh, Paul, Paul, thank you very much for your time today, and John, thank you. It's been um, a pleasure, privilege to um, talk to you guys again and uh, facilitate this conversation. Whether we're in a V-shaped valley, a U-shaped valley, whether we're crawling along the bottom of the ocean or we're about to have a hockey stick boost, um, all we know is that we as fans want the very best for the institution we've supported all our lives, the football club that we love, that has been passed down to us from generation and will be passed, has been passed to us down the generations and we will pass on in turn. Perhaps if there's one thing we're asking Farhad Mashiri to do, it's to let professionals be professionals, find more skilled professionals and allow them to do their job, both off the football pitch and on the football pitch. And if Mr Dyche is to be believed that the bare minimum that we expect is maximum effort, we might finally have a group of fans, a manager and some players uniting together for the goodness and the future and the growth and the improvement and the betterment of Everton Football Club. And we may see ourselves in calmer, brighter waters in the not too distant future. 
Thank you all very much for listening. And until the next time, whenever that may be, up those toffees. We may end up in Happy Valley. <laughs> 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 <laughs>